Hi, I'm Connie Loises. And this is Alex Gove. And this is Strictly VC Download. Hello, loyal listeners. It's been a crazy week. The strangest tech story this week was perhaps Facebook's decision to change its name to Meta. I loved all of the explainers about what is a metaverse. Mark Zuckerberg seems to want to escape this world for a virtual kingdom in which he can do anything he wants, a place where people like Francis Haugen do not exist. And then there was the story about Hertz ordering 100,000 Teslas and propelling Tesla into the trillion-dollar valuation club. In 2020, Hertz only had 424,000 cars in its U.S. fleet, so 100,000 represents a huge addition to its car inventory. But for Tesla, Hertz's order meant something far more. Tesla going mainstream. Oh, and I'm sure Musk didn't mind passing Bezos as the richest man on Earth and in space. But I digress. This week, Connie interviews Kevin Chow, a serial entrepreneur who first scored with Kabam, an online and mobile gaming company that he grew to $400 million in revenue and sold for nearly $1 billion in 2017. In the years since, Chow has founded two more companies, Forte, a blockchain platform for games, and Rally, a blockchain project focused on powering creator economies. Still, it is Chow's latest project, Superlayer, which just announced a $57 million round this week that could be his most ambitious of all. Chow envisions Superlayer as a Web 3.0 platform for builders, and he has gathered a wide array of crypto developers, creators, and investors to power the new company. It's a fascinating introduction to a world in which all software could conceivably be built on a blockchain foundation. But first, the news. The Wall Street Journal reports today that a Paris-based international standards body called the Financial Action Task Force has issued a new set of guidelines that could force crypto companies to more closely monitor transactions and verify the identities of their customers. Although the FATF is not a governmental agency, countries take its pronouncements seriously. In its report, the FATF pays special attention to decentralized finance, aka DeFi. The FATF believes that DeFi providers could be regarded as virtual asset service providers and thus be required to adhere to strict money laundering regulations. It seems quite common for DeFi arrangements to call themselves decentralized when they actually include a person with control or sufficient influence, the task force wrote. Of course, the Biden administration has appointed a number of financial regulators, such as SEC's Gary Gensler, who have expressed interest in tightening restrictions on crypto companies. And this report certainly could add weight to their arguments. Companies like Coinbase say that they already adhere to money laundering rules, and alternative currency advocacy groups maintain that current laws are good enough. Still, in a world in which regulators and politicians are still struggling to understand crypto and its implications, the FATF's report can't be good news for cryptocurrency proponents. In a rave review today, the Wall Street Journal invoked no less than Confucius to sing the praises of the new M1 MacBooks. 
But if you guess that Apple's new laptops are the tech giant's most back-ordered items, you would be wrong. As the New York Times reported yesterday, that honor goes to a 6 by 6 inch cloth used to wipe smudges and fingerprints off screens. This tech towel, which Apple imaginatively named the polishing cloth, retails for $19, an extraordinary sum for a little piece of fabric. Apple claims that the non-woven microfiber cloth is, quote, compatible with 88 different Apple products. But Federico Vitici, editor-in-chief of Mac Stories, a website dedicated to Apple news and apps, told the Times that the corner of his t-shirt works just as well. I've been cleaning my iPhone screen and my iPad screen with the cloth that comes with my eyeglasses or my t-shirt or a paper towel like normal people, he said. Even microfiber towels are a bargain compared to the polishing cloth. On Amazon, you can buy six 6x7 microfiber towels for $8.95, a figure that is 42 times less than the polishing cloth's price on a per-square-inch basis. Still, these facts mean nothing to hardcore Apple fans. The polishing cloth is sold out until January 11th at the earliest. Up next, Connie's interview with Kevin Chow of Superlayer. But first, a word from our sponsor. If you aren't already a subscriber to TechCrunch Plus, you're missing out. Discover how successful startups operate through deep-dive interviews with founders and investors. Spot trends and opportunities with market analysis, investor surveys, and topical newsletters. And get expert advice on fundraising, growth, and management from experienced entrepreneurs, plus much more. Visit TechCrunch.com slash subscribe to learn more. Kevin, thank you so much for joining me today. It's, it's nice to talk to you. It's great to be here. It's been longer than I realized since we last talked. It was 2018. This was soon after you'd sold your gaming company, Kabam, to South Korea's Netmarble Games for a reported $800 million. And I remember the sale came after many pivots from operating a social network to a game on Facebook until Facebook started charging game makers a hefty fee to use its real estate to a mobile game company where you had told me you were having to wait sometimes up to 20 days for someone at Apple to manually approve your software. So I was not surprised to see that you were now focused on decentralized tech and applications. You've got great notes or great memory or both. Yeah. (laughs) I think that's what was misunderstood about crypto these days. A lot of people think it's just a pet rock. Maybe now it's like digital gold and it just sits there and does nothing. It's just this digital token. But from my perspective, I think what we're just starting to see in 2021 is that things like Ethereum and other blockchains are now becoming development platforms. They are becoming a competitor to other development platforms. And and what that means is that instead of building a game and launching it on the iOS App Store or the Google Play Store, we can build a game on blockchain these days. And that is where the game lives. It's not quite apples to apples because blockchain is just the infrastructure, but it is just such a relief to be able to say, hey, we're going to build on this open source, decentralized development platform. And I think the technology is just getting good enough where we can can build real consumer applications now. So that's what Superlayer is about. Of course, I want to talk to you about Superlayer, but if we can take a step back and talk about Rally. So Rally was or is 
this protocol on top of Ethereum. Can you sort of explain to me the, the layers, <laughs> the super layer behind super layer? <laughs> Yeah, it's a, so Ethereum is, it's a little bit of a simplification, but it's a decentralized database. We'll just use Oracle as an example here. And what Rally does is we build a layer on top of Ethereum that makes it easy for developers to build what we call social tokens or just any large arbitrary number of tokens. And in our case, when we think, okay, well, what can you do if you create an arbitrarily large number of tokens? Well, what if we gave people the opportunity to create their own tokens, their own NFTs, and have that be something that you could do with no code, right? And just make it really simple to create lots and lots of stuff. And so that's what Rally was about, was this idea that we could help anybody in the world create their own tokens and NFTs with very little code. And then that could be used to create these online communities and help creators who have these communities that are spread between, let's say, a Twitch, a YouTube, an Instagram, a Twitter, and you can use blockchain, you can use your social tokens and NFTs to connect them all together. So that's where Rally, I think, is starting to get some traction on really solving that problem. I guess people can think of it as a Patreon, but rather than give donations, you're buying somebody's tokens and their NFTs to support them. Sometimes I am confused about the fact that there is this unlimited amount of tokens that can be created. So including as it pertains to Rally itself, I saw that there was a $57 million fundraise in April from your community. I'm just wondering, is there a finite number of Rally tokens? There is. It's 15 billion Rally tokens over an eight-year period of time. I'm sorry again to be a knucklehead, but how do you get to that amount? This stuff is really complex, for sure. How do we pick that number? Yeah. Frankly, it's a lot of art. I was just looking at other crypto projects. So we picked 10 billion at first. That was actually the, the original number. So what was originally the structure was that the founders and investors, we would own, you know, roughly 50% of the tokens, and then the community would own about 51% of the tokens or so. One of the things I love about crypto is that there's a movement where the community and the users who are creating all the values are feeling like, hey, we want to feel like we're contributing and in it for the long haul and that we want more than just 51%. And so we got together with everyone and we say, hey, what if instead of a traditional four-year cycle, we created an eight-year cycle? And really gave the community the chance to own 70% of the entire network. And so that's what we decided. So we wanted to make sure we go out and say, look, we're only going to own 30% of this network and that the community itself will will own 70% over time. So that's how we ended up at 15 billion. So they own 70% of the 15 billion tokens out there. And they are available for resale? Are they tradable? I know Coinbase Ventures is an early backer. Are they available on any of the platforms? It's on Coinbase and several other regulated exchanges all over the world, in Korea and in Asia. So in a, a number of other exchanges and places as well. So yeah, that's part of what's really interesting about this is that there's really a global marketplace for these tokens now, if and when they're providing real utility. Where are they value compared with where they started? So I think it started around five cents about a year ago and it's gone up, it's gone down. It's with all crypto, it's, it's volatile. Where is it right now? As of today, it's about 50, 50 some cents. You're not collecting fees. So Rally makes its money 
purely by the rise in value of its tokens? No. So what Rally has become is there's a ROI association, a nonprofit organization, and they hold a big basket or treasury of tokens. It works a little bit like an endowment or a foundation where the goal of the endowment or foundation is to invest its own funds and put them into practical use cases, whether it's investing in startups that are building on top of the ROI ecosystem and they're earning a little bit of a return if that startup does well. But the idea is that if we set it up as a foundation such that it can earn a 5% return on its treasury, it's going to more than pay for its overall operations. Kevin, my brain is melting. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's, it's weird stuff. It's it weird really stuff. Is. That's why you know, people, people will say, you know, there's a rabbit hole when it gets to crypto. It's like, you start off asking these really smart questions and then the answers seem non-obvious also. So then you ask another question. So that's why we call it a rabbit hole that you kind of have to go down. <laughs> um, so, okay. Now tell me a little bit more about super layer. Rally is an example of one thing that you can do using this platform that you've built, right? And so now you are hoping to entice third-party developers to build a whole lot of other things. We think about it as building a community of builders. We're starting with a lot of folks that we've met or known over the last three years building in crypto. And so we just had all these ideas. What's happened in the past three years is that there's been a lot of amazing ideas in crypto, but the technology and the infrastructure was too hard to build on to really get those ideas to market in a feasible way. There's a lot of technical reasons that I won't get too far in, but you're here about scalability or high fees or low transaction speeds and all this other stuff. The reality is I think we're at the point where between some of the new generation of infrastructure coming a lot of what we build at Rally, but also Forte, in terms of core infrastructure and tooling, we're finally at the point where I think we can say, here's a great new user-generated content or forum or a new blogging software or a new short-form video product we want to create powered by tokens and Web3. And we can actually build and launch that product in four to six months. And you don't need to bring in talent to lead these different initiatives. So we do. I think for a traditional venture fund, you're waiting for a really great CEO to come in, or at least somebody who can be the founding CEO. And I think the way that we structure Superlayer is that we've created a network whereby I think we're looking for a really good founding product manager, not necessarily a CEO. And then we surround that person with everything in terms of navigating regulatory, compliance, finance, GNA, legal, and of course, technology and development, design, tokenomics, all this stuff. So we basically get all these experts and we think about it as building a community of builders that help product manager with expertise in a specific domain build and launch a new, um, you know, generally everything we do is consumer crypto. And so, yeah, we basically recruit product managers as opposed to CEOs to, to basically lead up some of these new crypto projects that we're building and launching. I know that you're planning to deploy $25 million to start to see the development of these startups. How does that work? Now, does that mean you are going to, again, turn to the community for that funding? I also saw some big names associated with this launch, but I wasn't really clear what role they play. Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon, Mike Ovitz. Yeah, the, the way that we've structured it is that one part, the founder's money, the association that we talked about, right? Their model is... How do they invest their treasury? And then our model is, well, let's go build a bunch of new things on ROI. That's how we structure it. And then, of course, this last part is, how do we get a community of people that can help us be really smart, 
help us recruit great founding product managers. So it's not really about the capital. It's really more about how do we get this community together between you know, Mark Andreessen, Chris Dixon, Paris Hilton, Carter Ring, Richard Ma. We actually have a bunch of crypto founders, but a lot of them were a little shy about putting their names on a press release. So these are more traditional folks, but Packy McCormick, Joe Montana, Nas, Michael Ovitz, we're, we're really lucky to have a group of folks that can help us really think about consumer products and how do we launch these products that we're building in Web3 and make it understandable for the average consumer. So they're advisors or investors? They're investors. We have what's called a sidecar fund, which is pretty typical for funds these days. And that sidecar basically says, hey, you're an investor. There's no management fee that we charge to be an investor. And so they're investors and they're part of the community that we're trying to build. We've capped each individual to only 100K. So the, the whole point of this super layer is really to get a, a community together. Mm-hmm. Versus I think if we just allow people to write multi-million dollar checks, we'd blow through 25 million. And so my, my goal with this is that we really wanted to keep this first fund pretty small because I think the discipline of building and launching products in four to six months is a key North Star for us. One of the mistakes that I'll admit that I, you know, that I made at Rally is that because we were able to raise institutional money from Andreessen and Coinbase Ventures and Battery and others, I think we didn't have the right constraints. And I feel like with the super layer, part of our goal is to say, you know what, we're going to be really disciplined. We're going to raise a relatively small fund, less money than we raised for Rally, actually. And we're going to build and launch things really quickly with this fund. How much institutional funding has Rally raised? (laughs) So I actually do not know the answer to that off the top of my head. I'll say that the very first round of capital that we raised for Rally was $30 million. Okay. But there were subsequent rounds? Yes. The very first round was 30. We did two small rounds that were tens and $20 million range. And then we did this $57 million round. Well, as soon as an investor writes a check or buys tokens, they're, of course, thinking about how they get out of that investment. What's the exit for a company like Rally? Again, I realize that it's much more liquid and they can be selling their tokens all the while. Is that how they get their money back and make money? There's multiple ways, but yes, the value is in the tokens. The tokens are meant to be used. So we have plenty of our investors that are actually using the tokens to participate in different creator economies. And the idea is that creators are growing. If you could go back in time to when Logan Paul or something was just getting started on YouTube and, you, and, and let's say they had their own fan tokens and, and NFTs and you can participate and, and be a part of that. And, He's as big as he is now. That would be fantastic. And not only would you participate in that and do well, but you'd also be supporting that creator as they were getting started. And so certainly we have a number of investors who see that vision, right? That's the whole premise is that you can participate in a bunch of these different uh, creator economies, or as we launch super layer projects, you can participate in all these different super layer projects. There's another entity that's up and running right now called Unite. Unite is the Asia version of Rally. So Rally is very focus on complying with USA regulatory, but Unite is focused on Asia. So different platforms that creators use, different regulatory issues that they have to deal with. So both free from USA issues, but also focus on compliance with some of the Asia-specific stuff. They're up and running today on the RLY network. And so the idea is that you as an investor could be using your tokens on Unite or on Rally, on Superlayer, or of course, at your property. So you could exchange by Coinbase for something else if you want. That's up to that individual investor. Kevin, before you started Kabam, you worked, I think, maybe briefly with Maha, Canaan Partners, and Mahesh was at Redpoint. You guys understand venture capital very well. I'm wondering, based on what you've seen so far, do you think most VCs understand 
what you're trying to do. I thought that the announcement by Sequoia yesterday was really interesting. And I wondered what percentage of that move was driven by the fact that they want to get involved in tokens and web 3.0 projects. There seem to be limitations with traditional fund structures. I'm just wondering what you think VCs need to prepare themselves to do. Yeah, there's another announcement from Sequoia a few weeks ago. They talked about roughly 25% of their investments have been crypto recently. And so I, I think there's a few things that are, are certainly interesting. And we, I'm much closer to the Andreessen folks because they're a major investor in the rally and in Forte. And so they famously went through the whole RIA process, et cetera, so that they could hold public tokens and not be limited in what they do there. So yes, I'm sure crypto isn't the, the main driver for Sequoia, but maybe it's part of the rationale. But this idea that in a world where there's these new types of technology platforms that are being created that are powered by these tokens with a very different business model, with a very different technology architecture. This is the stuff that the next generation of builders and developers and founders are going to be working with. Well, geez, we have to figure out how to do that. And so certainly one of the challenges that I think a lot of funds have is once their investment becomes liquid, they are in a traditional venture fund, you are obligated to start to sell that and distribute it because the mandate of the fund isn't to be a public market investor. But if we look at the world today and what crypto is, if you started distributing your Bitcoin as soon as you started mining it you know, 11 years ago, that would be a disaster versus just holding it for 11 years, right? The ability to then take the token, stake it, use it, participate in the economy, and, and potentially compound the way that you're participating and creating value. And so it is difficult for the traditional venture fund style funds to do these types of token deals and be an active participant in a way that I think Sequoia and Andreessen have, have recognized. So maybe is your prediction that many more will turn into RIAs? I would say yes for crypto-focused funds. I don't see how you do crypto without being an RIA or some, some equivalent structure overseas. And then I think the other thing that Sequoia talked about, which is really fascinating, is that the technology companies take a long time. And so if you exited out of Google or Amazon or more recently, you know, Snowflake, as soon as they went IPO, you missed out on a lot of value creation. And so I think Sequoia talked about that as being an important thing that they care about. I wouldn't go as far to say I think most venture funds are going to go do this, but I do think if you're doing more than 50% of your investments in crypto, for sure, a different fund structure is necessary. Do you think that it's reasonable to think that in five years that a lot of the firms whose names we all know will be doing 50% crypto? I mean, it's, sometimes it's hard for me to separate the, the hype from the reality, but it really does seem like I'll, it. I'll, I'll say one thing. I'll say most crypto founders will not take an investment from a fund that has really strict limitations around tokens. Three years ago, when I first started, entrepreneurs were like, oh, it's not a big deal. I would say more and more in 2021, if it's something that's getting some, some traction in crypto is trying to raise money, they're not going to go, go to the traditional Sand Hill structure funds because of the limitations and the education that's and the handholding that's required to, to get these funds to do a crypto investment. Yeah, the last must be really daunting. And in terms of limitations, you mean their tokens maybe end up in different hands quickly because of their time constraints? We've had to spend a lot of time with funds who've never done a crypto investment just to handhold them, their CFOs. We've had to do investment committee meetings, the CFO meetings, lawyer meetings, just to give them delivery of their tokens and help them set up their security and operations around how does a general partnership hold the tokens and, and what do they need to do to disperse those tokens to their LPs. It was a 
really painful process, frankly. Kevin, thank you so much for putting up with me. I hope that I'm better educated by the time we talk again. Congratulations again on everything. Well, I think it's just so fun to be able to build. I think after Kabam, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do, but I just really love the early stages of building new things. And that's why I'm so excited about doing this. That's it. Thanks for listening. See you back here next week.